Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, guys, welcome back to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to talk about something that is really important, and it's understanding the character of God. What are God's attributes? And so when we talk about the attributes of God, we're trying to answer questions like, who is God? What is God like? What kind of God is he? An attribute of God is something true about the Lord from his word. And while fully comprehending who God is is impossible for us as limited beings, God does make himself known in a variety of ways through his word and through what he reveals about himself in his word and in his creation, we can begin to wrap our minds around our awesome creator God. God is unlike anything or anyone we could ever know or even imagine. He's one of a kind. He's unique. He's without compare and comparison. And even describing him with these mere words, like I'm going to do in this episode, it falls short of capturing all that he is. Our words cannot simply put, cannot do justice to describe our holy God. And yet, God possesses attributes that we can know even just in part. And he's given us his word so that we might know him. And so we're going to look today at 15 attributes of God, some of which uh, are called incommunicable, qualities possessed by God alone, and others are communicable, qualities that both God and we possess, though only he possesses them perfectly. So the first one that we're going to consider is God is infinite. He is self-existing without origin. Colossians 1.17 says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Psalm 147.5 says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The fact that God is self-existent, that he was created by nothing and has always existed forever, is one of the hardest attributes of God for Christians to understand. In our limitedness, grasping the nature of our limitless God is like holding on to water as it rages down a river. Indeed, A.W. Tozer writes about the confusing, head-spinning attribute of God's infinity when he says this, to admit that there is one who lies beyond us, who exists outside of all of our categories, who will not be dismissed with a name, who will not appear before the bar of our reason, nor submit to our curious inquiries. This requires a great deal of humility, more than most uh, of us possess. So we save face by thinking about by by thinking God down to our own level, or at least down to where we can manage Him. Over six thousand times, Jehovah, the word Jehovah is used in the Bible. It is the personal covenantal name of Israel's God. In the KJV, the King James translation is can't uh, translated Lord God. Not only does God 
spoken of, of of the strength of God, but it also speaks of the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God. The root of this name means self-existing, one who never came into being and one who always will be. Uh, Moses, in Exodus 3.14, speaking of God, he says that God is the I am, that God is the I am that I am, God says. That is, Jehovah or Yahweh is the most intensely sacred name to Jewish scribes, and many will not even pronounce that name. And when possible, they use another name. In, in John's Gospel, as we've considered many times on this show, Jesus seven times uses the I am statement, which goes back to Exodus 3.14. So, in f- focusing, Jesus does, when he says I am, on the fact that he is fully God and fully man. And when Jesus does that, we see the response of the religious leaders, don't we? Uh, they accuse him of blasphemy because he's claiming to be God and doing the works of God. And that's exactly the point. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Second attribute, God is immutable. He never changes. Malachi 3.6 says, I, the Lord, do not change so so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. You see, God does not change. Who he is never changes. His attributes are the same from the beginning of time into eternity. His character never changes. He never gets from better or worse. His plans do not change. His promises do not change. This is what is so concerning about the state of theology that came out last year from uh, LifeWay Research and uh, for, in, in conjunction with Ligonier Ministries, when they said that uh, people said that about 40% of professing Christians suggested that God does change. And yet in the Bible, what we see is God does not change. This is an incredible truth for Christians. Hebrews 13, 5 and 9 makes it clear that Jesus is uh, the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. This is a source of incredible joy for us as Christians. What this means very simply is that God is dependable. Our trust in him is a confident trust. We know that he will not, indeed cannot change. His purposes are unfailing. His promises unassailable. It is because the God who promised us eternal life is immutable that we can rest assured that nothing, not trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword shall separate us from the love of God in Christ. It is because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, that neither angels nor demons nor the things present nor the future, not even powers, height, depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord as Romans 8, 35-39 tell us. And not only is this an incredible help for us, it's help for us in our trials, on our difficult days. It's help for us in, on the good days when things seem to be going well. We can trust the Lord because He is unchanging. He is in the, working in the midst of history, our history, world history. That means that God is not asleep on the wheel, at the wheel. He is not distant from us. He is intimately involved. He knows the beginning from the end and everywhere in between. God knows the purposes and the designs and the plan that he has. And he's outlined those designs, that purpose, that plan in his word. That means that you personally, in the midst of your own life today, you can trust the Lord. You, he will help you. He is a very present help in your time of need, as Hebrews 
4.15 and 16 tell you. And so you can trust him. Now, third, God is self-sufficient. He has no needs. John 5.26 says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. As limited as human beings are, we have incredible needs, which left unfulfilled result in death. God, however, has never once been in need of anything. God is perfectly complete within his own being. Scott Swan, in in an article at Reformation 21, he writes that the self-sufficiency of God means that he possesses infinite riches of being, wisdom, goodness, and power in and of himself. He says, because he possesses these unfallible riches in the perfect knowledge and love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God is the blessed or happy God. You see, because God is self-sufficient, we can go to him with all of our needs. We never have to worry about drawing up his never-ending will of goodness, peace, mercy, love, justice. And this is not just a matter for our theology alone. Paul says this is a matter for worship. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. See, that should lead us to worship. That should lead us to living life that is before his face, which it always is. But acknowledge that, that our need is so great. As Paul says in Ephesians 1, if you you can look at the Greek, that whole section from chapter 3 to the, uh, just about the end of the, uh, the end of the chapter, it's all one long run-on sentence. And it emphasizes how the grace of God, Ephesians 1 does, the super abounding grace towards the Christian. That it means that the grace of God abounds and abounds and abounds and abounds to the grace of God to meet our need. And we are needy. We have an ongoing need of Christ. Charles Spurgeon said, I have a great need of Christ and a great Christ for my need. And we have a need of Christ. And in fact, Newton spoke, John Newton, the Puritan, spoke of this, that this is what it means to be a, a well-instructed Christian, to know your great need and to know the great Savior who meets that need. That's how great our need is. And that is how great our God is as well. Praise the Lord for that. So four, God is omnipotent, meaning that he's all-powerful. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, their starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. Job 11, 7 through 11 says, Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens above. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths below. What can you know their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea if he comes along and confines you in prison and convenes a court who can oppose him surely he recognizes deceivers and when he sees evil does he not take note omnipotent means to have unlimited power omni equals all potent equals powerful god is able and powerful to do anything he wills without any effort on his part and it's important to note that anything he wills part of this because God cannot do anything that is contrary to his nature. God, we, we can say, will always act consistently and coherently in accord with his revealed will. Hebrews 6.18 says, 
God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. See, God's attribute of omnipotence, it means that God is able to do all that he desires to do. And when he plans something, it will come to being. If he purposes something, it's going to happen. Nothing can prevent the plan and the purpose and the design of God from happening. When his hand is stretched out to do something, nobody can turn it back. Omnipotent comes from two Latin words. Omni means all. Potence means powerful. God's decisions are always in line with his revealed character. And he has the power to do whatever he decides to do. Scripture is clear in Psalm 24, 8, that God is strong and mighty. Nothing is too hard for the Lord to accomplish. Often God is called Almighty, describing himself as the one who possesses all power and authority. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 3.20, God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask and imagine. John MacArthur says, although such power might seem frightful, remember that God is good. He can do anything according to his infinite ability, but will do only those things that are consistent with himself. That's why he cannot lie. That's why he cannot tolerate sin or save impenitent sinners. You see, Titus 1-2 says that God cannot lie, as MacArthur is highlighting. That means that God will, as MacArthur said, always act consistently with his revealed character and his revealed will. And that means that you can trust him in the midst of your trials. You can trust him in the, on the hard days at your job, in your, in your home, with your spouse, with your friends, with your family, and, and with the world in which he is made, in which he upholds. There's nothing that God cannot do. God is all-powerful. Fifth point, God is omnipresent. He's all-knowing. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 says, Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand. I will do all that I please. God is omniscient, which means he knows everything. That means that God can be everywhere at the same time. He is not asleep at the wheel. He neither sleeps, he never slumbers. He's aware of every moment of every day and exactly knows what we're going uh, through. He knows our way and is with us always. There's no place in this earth or even in the cosmos where we can go that he doesn't see and know and care about his beloved. A.W. Tozer, writing about the omniscience of God, says God perfectly knows himself, and being the source and the author of all things, he says it follows that we, he knows all that can be known. And this he knows instantly and with a fullness of perfection that includes every possible item of knowledge concerning everything that exists or could have existed anywhere in the universe at any time in the past or that may exist in the centuries or ages yet unborn. And because God is all-knowing, we can trust that he knows everything that we're going through today and everything that we'll go through tomorrow. And when we meditate on this truth, especially in the light of the other attributes of God, especially his goodness and his love, it makes it easier for us to trust the Lord with what's going on in our lives, from the very serious things to even the silly and the mundane, every aspect of our lives. Six, God is omnipresent. He's always everywhere. 
Psalm 139, 7 through 10 says, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and at your right hand will lay hold of me. Jeremiah 23, 23 through 24 says, Am I, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not feel heaven and earth, declares the Lord? And so to be omnipresent, it means to be in all places at all times. And yet it's important to understand that for God to be in a place it doesn't mean in the same doesn't isn't this doesn't carry I should say the same meaning as us being in a place. God's being is altogether different from physical matter. He exists on a plane wholly distinguishable from the one readily available to the fine five senses. And still, He is with us. The fullness of His presence is all around us. Where shall I go from Your Spirit, or where shall I flee from Your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold on me. The psalmist proclaims God's omnipresence in Psalm 137. And this ought to bring deep comfort to Christians who struggle with loneliness and fear and sorrow. In a very real way, God is always near us. Closer than our thoughts, Tozer says, the knowledge that we are never alone calms the troubled sea of our lives and speaks peace to our soul. Seventh, God is wise. He is full of perfect, unchanging wisdom. Romans eleven thirty three says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Now, wisdom is more than just knowledge and intelligence. A truly wise person is somebody who understands all the facts and makes the best decision in light of those facts. A wise person uses his heart, his soul, and his mind with skill and with competence. But even the wisest man on earth would never close, come close to being as wise as God. God is infinitely wise. He's consistently wise. He's perfectly wise. A.W. Tozer says, Wisdom, among other things, is the ability to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends by the most perfect means. It sees the beginning, sees the end from the beginning, and so there cannot be no, there's no need to, to guess or conjecture. Wisdom sees everything in focus, each in proper relation to all, and is thus able to work towards predestined goals with flawless precision. And indeed, when we see wisdom like this, we realize how much our limited, finite wisdom compares with the limitless, infinite wisdom of God. And how comforting it is and how wonderful this is for us as people to dwell on. The fact that God can never be more wise means that he is always doing the wisest thing for us. No plan we could make in our own li- for our own lives could be better than the plan that he has already crafted and is carrying out for us. We might not understand his ways today, and that's okay, but we can trust that because God is infinitely wise, he is working all things for the best possible way for us. Eighth, God is faithful. He's infinite, infinitely, unchangingly true. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, 
he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And so as with all of the attributes of God, they are not separate, isolated traits, but interconnected parts of his perfect uh, whole being. And so his faithfulness cannot be understood apart from his unchanging nature, the fact that he never changes. And so we need to read that God remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. And so we see that his attributes all work together. The fact that he's unchanging means he can never be unfaithful. In fact, A.W. Pink writes about the faithfulness of God, saying, God is true. His word of promise is sure. In all his relations with his people, God is faithful. He may be safely relied upon. No one ever can yet really trusted him in vain. We find this precious truth, he says, expressed almost everywhere in the scripture. For his people need to know that faithfulness is an essential part of the divine character of God. This is the basis for our confidence in the Lord. And the fact that God is infinitely, unchangingly faithful, it means that he never forgets anything. He never fails to do anything that he set out to do. He never changes his mind. He never takes back his promise. And his faithfulness pours out from his love. So we can trust Paul's word that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, as Romans 8, 28 says. And so we don't always need to understand or see how his plan is faithful. In our limited understanding and our finite minds, God's faithfulness might look a lot like abandonment. How could a faithful God allow his children to suffer, to hurt, or even to die? But Christians could take comfort in these moments, remembering these attributes of God. For when we go through hard times, we need to preach the truth, the truth of Scripture to ourselves which scripture tells us that God is unchangingly faithful, good, always with us, always wise. And so faithfully trusting in who God says he is from scripture is an immeasurable comfort. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Ninth, God is good. He's infinitely, unchangingly kind and full of goodwill. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Tozer, speaking about the goodness of God, says this, that God disposes him uh, to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of good towards goodwill towards men. He is tender-hearted and of quick sympathy, and his unfailing attitude towards all moral beings is open, frank, and friendly. By his nature, he is inclined to bestow a blessedness, and he takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people. And so just like the other attributes of God, God's goodness exists with his immutability, his unchanging nature, that is, and his infinite nature. And so that he is unchanging. He is always good. His mercy flows from his goodness. And in his goodness to us, we see that he has purpose to be good in a special way to his people. And as with God's other perfect attributes, Christians find it easier to affirm the goodness of God when things are going well. And when life takes a nosedive, when things are challenging, that's when we begin to challenge the goodness of God. And yet the psalmist says in Psalm 34, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's inviting us not just to believe that God is good, but to know and to experience the goodness of God. You see, what the psalmist is saying here is he is affirming his experience of the goodness of God from a place of suffering. In Psalm 34, 19, he makes the remarkable announcement, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Even with a good God who is sovereign over everything and has the power to do whatever he wills, good people still suffer. His punchline, though, comes in the next phrase. But 
the Lord delivers him out of them all. Evil happens, but none of those who take refuge in the, him will be condemned, Psalm thirty-four twenty-two says. So 10th, God is just. He is infinitely, unchangingly right and perfect in all he does. Deuteronomy 32, 4 says, The rock, his, way is, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness, and without justice, righteous and upright is he. What does it mean that God is just? It means more than he is simply fair. It means he always does what is right and good towards all men. And although this is hard for us to accept his sentencing of evil, unrepentant sinners to hell, it's also right and good. A natural question arises, how then can a just God justify the unjust as each of us are without Christ? Tozer answers saying that we find the answer through the Christian doctrine of justification and redemption. Saying this, he does, Tozer does, through the work of Christ and atonement, justice is not violated, but satisfied when God spares a sinner. And so the mercy of God does not forbid him to exercise his justice, nor does his justice forbid him to exercise his mercy. He is both fully merciful and fully just. And in light of the other attributes of goodness, mercy, love, and grace, there are some who might in error say that God is too kind to punish the ungodly. But to believe this means we are dull to the reality of his infinite, unchanging justice. God will have justice for sin, either from Christ's atoning death or from those who will not accept it, eternal wrath and hell. R.C. Sproul says, let's assume that all men are guilty of sin in the sight of God from the mass of humanity. God sovereignly decides to give mercy to some of them. What do the rest get? They get justice. The, the saved get mercy and the unsaved get justice. Nobody gets injustice. 11. God is merciful. He is infinitely unchanging, compassionate, and kind. Romans 9, 15-16 says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And so it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And so as we've been talking, God's mercy is inseparable from his justice. He is infinitely, unchangingly, unfailing, merciful, forgiving, loving, kind towards us. He is inexhaustibly, actively compassionate. His mercy is also undeserved. Charles Spurgeon, that prince of preachers, says, It is undeserved mercy, as indeed all true mercy must be, for deserved mercy is only a misnomer for justice. There was no right on the sinner's part to the saving mercy of the Most High God. Had the rebel been doomed at once to eternal fire, he would have justly merited the doom as if delivered from wrath. Sovereign love alone has found a cause, for there was none in the sinner himself. And without the mercy of God, we have no hope of heaven. Because of our disobedience hearts, we deserve uh, death. For all have sinned, as Paul says in Romans 3.23, and have fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. But because of the mercy of God, we don't get what we deserve. Instead, because of the mercy of God, we get life through faith in Christ alone. Tozer writes about the mercy of God, saying, As judgment is God's justice confronting moral iniquity, so mercy is the goodness of God confronting human suffering and guilt. Were there no guilt in the world, no pain and no tears, God would yet be infinitely merciful, but his mercy might well remain hidden in his heart. 
unknown to the created universe. No voice would be raised to celebrate the mercy of which none felt the need. It is human misery and sin that call forth the divine mercy. Twelfth, God is gracious. God is infinitely inclined to spare the guilty. Psalm 145.8 says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. And so if mercy is not getting what we do deserve, that's damnation. Grace, grace is getting what we don't deserve, eternal life. Tozer says, as mercy is God's goodness confronting human misery and guilt, so grace is his goodness directed towards human debt and demerit. It is by his grace that God imputes merit where none previously existed and declares no debt to be where one had been before. And because grace is part of who God is and not just an action he bestows, it means that we can trust that grace is eternal. His grace is something we do not earn or lose. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself, it is the gift of God. Ephesians 2.8 His grace is also sovereign. Exodus 33.19 I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. But when we're talking about the grace of God, theologians often differentiate between God's common grace and his saving grace. And so the common grace of God is a gift to all mankind. It is the reason that everyone, Christian or even non-Christian, enjoys the blessings of life, provision, and abundance. Matthew 5.45 says, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And so while all humanity benefits from common grace, only those who profess uh, and believe and put their faith in Christ receive the saving grace of God. This is what results in our sanctification and our glorifying of God, that we might live for him and enjoy him for all eternity. Thirteenth, God is loving. God infinitely, unchangingly loves his own. First John four seventeen through 18 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Love. The word staggers before its task of even describing the reality, R.C. Sprawl writes in his book, God's Love. And as with the other attributes, we can only begin to comprehend the love of God in light of the other attributes of God. The love of God is eternal, it's sovereign, it's unchanging, it's infinite. And Tozer says this, It is a strange and beautiful eccentricity of the free God that he allowed his heart to be emotionally identified with men. Self-sufficient as he is, he wants our love and will not be satisfied till he gets it. Free as he is, he has let his heart be bound to us forever. God's love is active, drawing us to himself. His love is personal. He doesn't love humanity in some vague sense. He loves humans. He loves you and me. And his love for us knows no beginning and no end. 14. God is holy. He's infinitely, unchangingly perfect. Revelation 4, 8 says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The word holy means to be sacred, set apart, revered, or divine. And yet none of these words is adequate to describe the awesome holiness of God. John MacArthur, writing of the holiness of God, says this, Of all the attributes of God, holiness is the one that most uniquely describes him, and reality is the summation of all of his other attributes. The word holiness refers to his separateness, his otherness, the fact that he is unlike any other being. It indicates his complete and infinite perfection. Holiness is the attribute of God that binds all the others together. That God is holy means that he is endlessly, always perfect. And his standard for us is perfection. Matthew 5, 48 says, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
And this is why we have a great need of Christ and a great Christ for our need. Without Christ taking our place and for our sin and dying for our sins, we would all fall short of the standard of God. Tozer writes this about the holiness of God and its demands, saying, Since God's first concern for his universe is its moral health, that is, its holiness, whatever is contrary to this is necessity of is necessarily under his eternal displeasure, I mean. To preserve his creation, God must destroy whatever would destroy it. And when he arises to put down iniquity and to save the world from irreparable moral collapse, he is said to be angry. Every wrathful judgment in the history of the world has been a holy act of preservation. The holiness of God, the wrath of God, and the health of the creation are inseparably united. God's wrath is his utter intolerance of whatever degrades and destroys, Tozer says. And so thankfully, the Christian will never have to experience the full weight of the wrath of God. Through Christ's death and resurrection, the penalty of our sins were paid and were imputed or credited with Christ, the righteousness of God in Christ alone, the Christians is. And now, when God looks on us as his people, he sees the perfect holiness of Christ. This is a matter of worship. It is only in this that we can hope to stand in the presence of the blindingly pure, perfect, holy one of Israel. 15. God is glorious. He is infinitely beautiful and great. Habakkuk 3.4 says, His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand, and there is the hiding of his power. John Piper defines the glory of God this way when he says, The glory of God is the infinite beauty and the greatness of God's manifold perfections. The infinite beauty and the I am focusing on the manifestation of his character and his worth and his attributes, all of his perfections and greatness are beautiful as they are seen, and there are many of them. That is why I use the word manifold, Piper says. Ligonier writes this about the glory of God when they say, When we think of the glory of the Lord, the image of the brilliant light often comes to our mind, they says. That is certainly appropriate, as Scripture often describes the glory of God in terms of a light that shines brighter than anything that we experience on the earth. The glory of God is, of course, inseparable from his other attributes, and so God is eternally, infinitely, unchangingly glorious. His radiance and his beauty emanate from all that he is and all that he does. Isaiah 43, 7 says that man was created by God and for his glory. And so our whole existence and our purpose in life is to glorify him and enjoy him forever, as the Westminster Confession of Faith says. As we are created in his image and do the work, the good work that he has prepared for us to do. And now man will inevitably try to glory in other things or to boast and to make himself an object of glory. And when those things fail to bring us satisfaction, we must decide to humble ourselves and to turn our gaze back to the only one who is worthy of glory, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I want to thank you for listening or watching this episode of the Equipping and Grace podcast. Until next Monday and Wednesday, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. 
You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.